Hello and welcome back to Everyday Anarchism, the show that finds anarchism, non-domination, cooperation, mutual aid in your everyday life. I am your host, Graham Colbertson. This is the first anniversary episode. Yes, if you can believe it, I cannot. I have been making Everyday Anarchism for a year. Still have pets around. That was the cat. And for this very special episode, I have invited back Ruth Kinna, the amazing scholar of anarchism, and also the source of the word non-domination in my intro, to discuss William Morris. Now, as you'll see in our conversation, some people don't consider William Morris an anarchist. As near as I can tell, the main person who didn't consider William Morris an anarchist was William Morris. But I certainly consider him an anarchist. And if you've ever clicked through to the merch section of everydayanarchism.com, most of the designs incorporate William Morris's work. He was a brilliant artist and also a very important, call him what you will, anarchist, communist, socialist, liberator. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Ruth. Hello, welcome back to Everyday Anarchism. Welcome back, Ruth Kinna. This is uh, this is going to be the first anniversary episode as I've been as we're recording this I've been doing this podcast for about 11 months it will come out next month it will be one year since I've been doing this podcast you're one of my very first guests you're my first three-time guest <laughs> thank you so much Ruth for uh for coming on this show and just having been a, a friend of everyday anarchism well it's an absolute pleasure and uh and congratulations on on the on the anniversary yes one one year of 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 sitting in in my basement, talking about anarchism into a microphone, um, mostly, sometimes by myself, mostly with fantastically interesting people. And as as Ruth, as you can see, but as no one else can see, I now am sitting in a uh, an office at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, which frankly, I think my unfinished basement might be a nicer space um, than, than this office. Let, let it never be said that those of us in the humanities at research universities are living uh, the life of luxury because no. because we are not. No, quite right. But there's potential. Oh, sure, sure. We'll call it, we'll we'll call it that. Speaking of the life of luxury, I have brought you here today to talk about William Morris, um, who is a figure who I have kept somewhat at arm's length, not intentionally, as I've been studying the anarchist movement. And I just thought it would be wonderful to to bring him into the fold on this first anniversary. And I'll also say before we introduce him, the episode that will be airing next week is with an economic economic historian named Brad DeLong. He is a professor at Berkeley. Um, He served in the Clinton administration working for Larry Summers. And his new book is called Slouching Towards Utopia. And it's essentially the way that we are going to, by hook or by crook, frustratingly make left-wing progress via market mechanisms and then, you know, center-left governments of the kind that Brad DeLong worked in, distributing 
the, the wealth and knowledge created by market mechanisms. And as, as you know, one of the people who created this idea is this guy named Edward Bellamy, who wrote this book, Looking Backward in, in the late 19th century, that said essentially what, what Brad DeLong is saying is we can have and should have an industrial, scientific, progress-based society, but we've just got to stop giving all of these riches that's created by this great machinery to a few people, and we need to give it to everyone. Mm. So that will be next week. This mm -hmm. week is William Morris, who wrote his, his most famous literary work, News from Nowhere, as a response to Bellamy, as a way of saying, wait, wait, we, we are not slouching towards utopia. As you are building yep. the factories, something much worse and insidious is happening. And Morris has a totally different vision of the future. So we're gonna we're gonna I'm gonna put those side by side in the podcast. The you know, an economic historian writing today, looking back towards Bellamy, and then you and I speaking today, looking backwards towards towards Morris. Because boy, does it make that they're both socialists in their way, but boy, does it make a difference which socialism, which late 19th century socialist you take as the person who is imagining the future. Yeah, that's right. And, and um, I mean, Morris doesn't actually say that he writes News from Nowhere as a response to Bellamy, but he had read Bellamy and he'd written a, a, a critical review of Bellamy. And clearly, I think you're, you're absolutely right that that what he, what he outlines or the, the, you know, the story that he gives us in News from Nowhere um, is, is consciously directed against those kinds of technocratic, um, state-centric uh, ideas of redistributing wealth. And, and one of the fundamental arguments that Morris wants to, to make, I think, is that we have to, to revisit what we understand by wealth in the first place. Uh, yes, that, and that's, that's, that's the basis of the argument, I think. That's another way of putting it. That's why I started with life of luxury, because Bellamy yeah. imagines a life of luxury and Morris also imagines a life of luxury, but they are not, they not are the not very similar <laughs> lives. Um, okay, well, let's save news from nowhere towards the end. And before we get there, I want to talk about Morris's art and also his relationship with anarchism, which is a a complicated one from where I'm sitting. He's clearly an anarchist and frankly, a quite mainstream anarchist. I also know that he, he altered his views and also had various times where he did not, perhaps all times did not accept that label. But before we get there, can you just tell us a little bit about the arc of his life? Yes. Yeah, so Morris is born into a, um, a very well or very comfortable um, family in 1834 um he's educated in a, a a private school which is Marlborough um he says I mean he's he's he has quite a an unusual uh development I suppose in terms of sort of being a member of the of the middle classes in the sense that I mean he goes to school and and says that he absolutely learns nothing from it so he doesn't sort of identify himself if you like with the um with that kind of elite class and and what he does learn while he's at school he says he learns from from going out into the countryside and and looking at the looking at England looking at the uh looking at nature uh he 
he goes to to Oxford University, goes to Exeter College in Oxford, at Oxford University, where he meets Edward Burton Jones, who becomes one of the uh, the great artists of the sort of the second incarnation of the pre-Raphaelite movement. Um, and with um, Burton Jones, um, he's I mean he's in, he's he's influenced by two things. One is the work of John Ruskin, um, which is uh, all about the all about attacking the sort of the, the perfection of, of, of classical art uh, and this idea that uh, it's possible to, to devise sort of uh, beauty from, from perfecting one's uh, study of artifice. Um, and from Ruskin, he learns the idea that, that actually uh, the practice of art and and the the idea of beauty that we that we should most value comes from uh, practice, uh, from what what people do through their communal activity and through through the imperfections that that breeds. It's that difference and it's that regard for uh, for locality that really sort of speaks to 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 beauty in Morris's view. So if you can't move across you know, the countryside and see that the architecture changes because the materials change, then actually you've lost something already uh, in your in your in your aesthetics. So that's one of the things that animates them. The other thing that animates them is um, what's called the Oxford movement, which was um, a religious movement and a revivalist movement. And it was a, uh, a movement that was uh, directed against Puritanism as a as an aesthetic form, the, you know, this sort of rejection of uh of ritual uh of on, or um ornamentation uh and a recovery of uh what from from a from an anglican point of view was sort of considered slightly papist if you like the idea that that when you went into a, a religious space actually you should be overawed by the by the beauty of that space and by its ornamentation and these two things i mean together lead them to to completely revise uh, their career prospects, if you like. So they would have been expected to, to go into, um, into the church or into the civil service or into some kind of um, you know, professional activity. Um, and together they decide that they're going to dedicate them, themselves to, to art, uh, although neither of them has a background in this, uh, but that's what they do. So when Morris leaves university, he, he leaves with Burne Jones, uh, they make a connection uh, or they meet uh, Gabriel Dante Rossetti, who's one of the original members of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. Um, they set up, I mean, they, they spend some time living with him in Red Lion Square, which is in London. Um, and from there, Morris um, sets up a, a, a company, which is called The Firm. Uh, the Firm is, is dedicated to the production of um, everyday um, articles of beauty, and it's intended to uh, to be a vehicle, if you like, or a platform um, for uh, bringing beautiful objects to everybody's lives. Uh, and it, it doesn't succeed. I mean, it succeeds in, in creating some, some beautiful stuff um, and, and things that we, you know, we associate with Morris today, like the wallpapers, the cushions, the fabrics, all of this um, is, is sort of part and parcel of, of the work that's done in the firm. Uh, but it's 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 all made by hand by artisans, um, by by using hand techniques, uh, by rejecting chemical dyes, um, 
And basically, you can't produce work like that in a, in a way that's, that's or for a price that, that ordinary people can afford. So basically, Morris realizes that the only way that he can sustain his artistic ambitions is to, to sell his work or to sell his products to the people that he doesn't really want to reach, which is the rich and the middle class. <laughs> Uh, and this this provokes a kind of a um, a crisis in him, I suppose, where you know, having thought of himself as someone who was going to dedicate himself to to art and beauty and spreading art and beauty uh, in the world, he realizes that all he can do is satisfy what he calls the swinish tastes of the bourgeoisie, uh, and so he decides or he discovers um, that the that the um, the space for art is gone. We're we're living in a in a social and economic climate in a condition that does not allow art to thrive. Actually, what it allows is commerce and trade to thrive, and commerce and trade function on the basis of mass production uh, and not of aesthetics. So what we're doing is flooding our lives with cheap tat, ugly cheap tat. Not only that, we're destroying the environment in the process. So we're building uh, these dirty factories that are killing people, destroying our nature uh, in order to satisfy um, a profit motive that is going to, to debase us in terms of our aesthetic culture. Um, and, and therefore, his life's work cannot succeed. He, he has become a failure. And at that point, this is in, I suppose, by the, the late 1870s, early 1880s, he says he is willing to join any movement uh, that will enable him to advance uh, political change that will facilitate the rebirth of art. And that's when he becomes a socialist. Okay, wow, um, that, that was wonderful. Uh, I guess a couple of things that I will add maybe to, to, to make some, to add some color to this is, is first of all, if you've if you've ever been to London, uh, there's this absolutely exquisite building, um, a cathedral, St. Paul's Cathedral. And I'm not sure about Morris, but I've read Ruskin. Ruskin hated it. I mean, it took everything that was beautiful about Roman buildings. And then this is the movement that's called neoclassical, made it even more beautiful. And if you're an American and you've been to Washington, D.C. and you like things like the capital. Those are that's a cheap, crummy imitation imitation compared to St. Paul's. But for Ruskin, and I assume also for Morris, mm -hmm. this was absolutely the wrong way to yeah. go in terms of the creation of art. Yeah. yeah. So, so in terms of the sort of the 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 the, the visuals and the architecture, the epitome of of beauty for for Ruskin and for Morris uh, was were the were the were the Gothic cathedrals. So the cathedrals that you find, um, I mean, dotted over not only in uh, across uh, Britain, but also in northern France. So these were buildings which, according to Morris and, and Ruskin, were built. I mean, they, 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 they were built by um, by master craftsmen, but also uh, ordinary workers. But basically, you became a master craftsman through honing your technique through your practice. So it wasn't a matter of hiring the architect to do the drawing and then get other people to build it uh, and try and uh, emulate uh, a style that, that belonged to another period. What you were doing was building, 
according to your um, according to your spiritual and your environmental um, within those limits, if you like. And so your art was an expression of your time and your culture and your belief system. And that was what Morris believed had been lost. Uh, and, and St Paul's Cathedral was, yeah, absolutely an example of a kind of an artificial uh, architecture. Okay, the other thing I wanted to mention is I, I am very taken, completely taken by Morris's idea of this sort of artisanal society. And uh, I'll talk with uh, Brad DeLong uh, about what, whether or not this vision of an artisanal society uh, can can make sense. I have a feeling Brad is going to say, no, it's it's simply not efficient enough. But you will find, uh, and someone like Frank Lloyd Wright, um, who was fairly anarcho-democratic in his vision, but especially if you think about in America, I assume also in the UK, you know, we had this enormous period of uh, machine crafted everything, including mm -hmm. the suburbs. And in the 80s and 90s, especially in places like Brooklyn, you started having handcrafted everything mm -hmm. and you started having heirloom tomatoes. Uh, William Morris is sometimes called the father of craft beer. Not that he's the father of craft beer, but that mm -hmm. he's the father of artisanal craft. And this stuff is wonderful. Wonderful. The pickles, the artisanal pickles are better. And yet, and just like with the houses of Frank Lloyd Wright, they have become a marker of prestige and bourgeois and the 1%. So you can go have delicious, fantastic pickles made by an artisan and drink beer made by an artisan and eat a game hen that was carefully uh, raised by an artisan in an arts and crafts house with William Morris wallpaper, you can mm -hmm. live that life. It does exist. And the people who live that life much prefer it to the life that the rest of us are living. But it has completely failed, as it did for Morris back then, to become a something for mass culture. I would argue that's the fault of the economic system, yeah. not the artisanal model. I have a feeling Brad yeah. DeLong is going to say... It's just always been and always will be a fantasy. Yeah. So, so Morris would argue that it's it's it it it, it didn't fail. It was destroyed, uh, and it may have been. And I think Morris, in the end, did think that the destruction of 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 that of that kind of craft society, the medieval craft society, was inevitable. So, in that sense, he accepts that there's a kind of a um, uh, a kind of a materialist history, if you like, which explains why we lost that that way of life. But but Morris's answer, I think, to that is that it's true that you the, uh, the incompatibility of that model of production um, lies with production for profit. You can't have the same mode of production and expect to reap the same rewards from it. What you get if you if you return or if you rekindle um, a craft uh, society, if you like, is that you have less goods and they last for longer and you cherish them. Um, and and the point he makes is, is one of the things that he becomes is a sort of a um, he becomes a great expert on all sorts of things. But he becomes one of the advisors of the at the um, what is now the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. Um, and he advises them on their medieval manuscripts, and and you know he's uh, he's just one of the people who's always sort of called in to to look at stuff. Um, and one of the points he makes about the collections that they've got there is a lot of the things that are now kept behind glass 
um, and 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 regarded as, yes. as a height of of you know of of uh, giving the incredible sort of value. Um, which were produced by Greeks and Romans and Assyrians and and all these other you know uh, previous uh, you know ancestral peoples, if you like, was that these were not produced for elites. They were produced for everybody. Uh, and Morris's point is that you, it's not impossible to imagine a society where our everyday wares are um, produced effectively by hand and by craftspeople, and we're all craftspeople, what's impossible to imagine is that you can sustain that mode of production if you want to keep making profit. Mm. That's not right. That's not possible. And that's the contradiction. And the people who do get to have this artisanal lifestyle in one way or another have access to profits. The the joke in Brooklyn is trust fund, right? Is they, um, they, they are unlikely to be artisans themselves. They're much more likely to uh, work in the tech industry, thereby taking part in this profit system, and then they take their rewards from the profit system and turn it into an, an artisanal lifestyle that is for that is for themselves. Yeah. So, so Morris's position is different. Or like, you know, I don't want to impute um, politics to people, but but Morris's position as a as a craftsperson who is you know turning out these these fantastic objects is he one he recognizes that that not everybody is in a position to do this that the workers generally speaking are forced into factories and simply you know there's no way that they're going to be able to work like he can work um, and therefore his rationale for continuing to to uh, continuing with with the business if you like once he becomes a socialism is that he's going to invest his money apart from looking after his his sick daughter, which is his, one of his priorities, but he wants to invest his money in a movement that he hopes is going to destroy capitalism. Now, that might be naive, but that's what he thought. So he doesn't want to just protect his position as a, as a, as a, as a privileged worker, if you like, as, an, as a craftsman. What he wants to do is actually to fight for the end of, of, the, of the system that prevents other people from doing the same. And I think he's absolutely committed to that. Excellent. Okay. So this, I think this can bring us to, you know, towards the, this can bring us to the questions of whether or not he's an anarchist and whether he's not, he's an anarcho-communist, because this is after he becomes a socialist. I know he's in a number of organizations, some of which he leaves and some of which, um, some of which fall apart. I guess I can start by saying, you know, I know he. I know he shares the stage with Kropotkin and recently a book that he inscribed uh, to Lucy Parsons was found. So it's very hard to see him as anything but an anarchist uh, from this moment uh, at at, at this time in 2022. So I'm curious as to how he might or might not be considered an, an anarchist and what that has to do with his activism. Yeah, so so calling calling Morris an anarchist in in the UK is still you know deeply controversial. <laughs> Uh, he, so he he becomes he, having sort of said that he's going to join the first movement that's that's committed to the destruction of of commerce, uh, which is what he calls capitalism. Um, he joins the Social Democratic Federation. It's called the, it's the then the Democratic Federation becomes a Social Democratic Federation, which um, is headed by a guy called H. M. Heinemann, uh, who's who's a who's an interesting character, but but kind of a. Um, I mean, he's known as a Tory, as a Tory um, elitist. I mean, he's someone who who basically thinks that the working classes can't do anything for themselves and therefore need people like 
uh, like him to liberate them um, for their own good. Um, but the, the Democratic Federation, the Social Democratic Federation, becomes, if you like, the main vehicle for um, for Marxism in, in the UK. Uh, so although it's a very small group and it's a group that, I mean, Marx dies in 1883, I think, um, Engels at this time is is living largely in London, and although he can't stand, I mean, pretty much anyone who's who's involved in the, the Social Democratic Federation, he recognises that the Social Democratic Federation is the main vehicle uh, for him to 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 um, to use to, to to promote Marxism. So it becomes a um, it becomes signed up, if you like, to to the to the to the politics of eventually the Second International, which is. Uh, dominated by the German Social Democratic Federation, which is definitely the the flag bearer for Marxism in Europe. Um, and as part of that, uh, it commits itself to struggling for revolutionary change uh, by taking power in Parliament. So the idea is that uh, you organise as a political party. This is before um, all the workers have have the suffrage, but you organise as a political party. Uh, you, you, you fight for uh, the extension of the suffrage uh, in order to take power in Parliament and then destroy it and then see through socialist transformation. Um, and that the programme that comes with it is basically a programme of nationalisation uh, and of proletarianisation. So you're taking the capitalist system and what you're doing is you're socialising it so that you 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 take control of of of, of uh, the land, the industry, the agriculture. Uh, you 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 put it in the hands of the representatives of the of the proletariat, and then you come up with a, a plan uh, to to realise distribution according to need, uh, or distribution according to work, then distribution according to need. And Morris looks at this and says, "That's not my socialism, <laughs> because what I want." is not just a change of, of ownership uh, or the abolition of, of private enterprise. I want a change in the way we produce things. And taking control uh, of the land and the factories is not going to change the way we produce. It's just going to mean that, that different people get benefits from it. Um, and he doesn't either trust Parliament. I mean, for Morris, I mean, Morris's background is one um, where Politics itself is understood as a kind of a dirty, as a dirty word. Politics means um, telling lies, um, <laughs> seeking your own advantage, uh, trying to outwit the opposition, having no real principle, um, and and just entering into a kind of a competition um, to, to to dominate. So he's suspicious of of, of of parliamentary politics even before he's a socialist. But as a socialist, he simply doesn't believe that taking control of parliament is going to, to bring about the change that he wants. So he calls himself an anti-parliamentarian. And because he does that, he finds a natural alliance with the anarchists. It's also true that in the early 1880s, um, he supports, he comes out um, in 1881, uh, John Most, who at that time is is he's a, you know he's one of the big figures or becomes one of the big figures in the American anarchist movement. Um, he's locked up for having supported the assassination of the Tsar um, <laughs> in, in Russia, and he's sent to I don't know hard labour. 
And Morris writes that as far as he's concerned, he's on he's on the side of most and that he thought it was a jolly good idea that the Tsar was assassinated, too. So that kind of puts him in, a, in another kind of space where he's prepared to contemplate um, as as right, as, as legitimate, the assassination of a tyrant. Um, and because that position also becomes associated very strongly with anarchism. Uh, as opposed to social democracy. So he kind of has these links, but he never calls himself an anarchist. He becomes personally friendly with Kropotkin. Kropotkin's round for tea at Kelmscott <laughs> House, which is in, uh, in Hammersmith in London. Uh, he's invited to give lectures there. Uh, they're admirers of each other's work. Um, Kropotkin writes a, an amazing eulogy for Morris when he dies in 1895. But he never he he never commits to anarchism beyond um, being an anti-parliamentarian. He calls himself a communist, which no one at the time is is calling themselves. Not until Lenin takes the term in 1917. Um, and towards is, is the end, not using the term anarchist communism yet. He calls him anarchist communist, but not okay. just communist. Okay. So, so Morris in calling himself a communist and not calling himself an anarchist communist is making a kind of statement, I think. Uh, Ruskin had called himself a communist. Right. Um, <laughs> although um, Morris's <laughs> policy is quite different from Ruskin's. But um, I mean, the other complication is that when, when Morris leaves the, the Social Democratic Federation, he sets up his own party or his own group, it's not a party, uh, which is called the Socialist League. Um, and what happens in the Socialist League is that because of the way that, that, that the, um, the kind of the international arguments between anarchists and social democrats or Marxists kind of break down, um, different groups, I mean, people are forced to choose, if you like, uh, sides. So in calling himself an anti-parliamentarian and in adopting a particular strategy for change, Morris is kind of indicating that he's taken a side uh, and this alienates the right wing of his own group. Uh, and that, that group rejoins the Social Democratic Federation. So chooses Marxism, if you like, against him. That tends to, to you know, even more <laughs> spotlight Morris as an anarchist. And it also leaves him in a, in a grouping which, in which he's, um, kind of outflanked by his own left wing, who do call themselves anarchist. Mm -hmm. And increasingly what happens over the, um, the 1880s to, to the 1890s is that the Socialist League becomes increasingly anarchist in its politics. And, and that anarchism expresses itself not as a kind of a Kropotkin type of anarchism, but as, a, as an insurgent anarchism, which is very much focused on um, propagandistic acts, uh, assassinations, uh, you know, really bloodthirsty kind of or blood curdling kind of discourse. And Morris finds this absolutely, I mean, this is, this is no more, um, you know, his kind of socialism. This isn't, this isn't going to achieve the, the transformation mm -hmm. of, of, of capitalism any more than, than parliamentary politics is. And so what happens is that he leaves his own group. He leaves the Socialist League. He continues to fund it, which is you know, quite <laughs> incredible. Um, uh, but he 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 sets up what is what's called the Hammersmith Socialist Society, uh, and eventually, towards the end of his life, uh, he he makes a common alliance, if if you will, with the 
with his former um, opponents in the Social Democratic Federation. And he comes out definitely against anarchism. He calls anarchists uh, individualists. I mean, really extraordinarily uh, for me, he, uh, he even uh, accuses Kropotkin uh, of being ultimately uh, an individualist, mm, wow. even though he calls himself a, a communist. It, it becomes, I think, I think he becomes quite embittered, if you like, mm. uh, which is not surprising uh, given what's happened in his own uh, political life. But he, but one, he never calls himself an anarchist. I think it's it's tricky to call him an anarchist. I think he's definitely someone who, um, once you take away all of that sectarian politics, he's clearly someone who who wants to think about revolution in terms of a of a broad social transformation, uh, which puts him in a in a kind of an anarchist space. I think, um, and someone who doesn't think that you can you can just change the the leadership in order to to bring that about okay i mean i i must admit i find i find this very frustrating um in that it's see it, again I'll, I'll, i think i'm going to stick where i was which is it's obvious to me that morris is an anarchist <laughs> to to put it um, to put it another way um and i mean look i've seen arguments on social media where anarchist academics argue about whether someone is an anarchist or merely a libertarian socialist. Perhaps, Ruth, because my training does not come from anarchism, uh, that I that I came through the American tradition of pragmatism, I, I can't even figure out what the hell that means. I mean, I've looked into it, and as near as I can tell, some libertarian socialists use the term interchangeably with anarchists, and some do not. This comes... In uh, in the soul of man under socialism, Wilde has a phrase where he he doesn't use the word anarchism, although Wilde is also to me obviously an anarchist. But he says, um, "Call it socialism, call it communism, or or call it what you will, something mm. something like that." So it seems to me, and you can uh, certainly welcome to agree or disagree or or defer, and we can get to this with news from nowhere. There's a grouping of people. Uh, Lucy Parsons, Emma oh. Goldman, Tolstoy Gandhi, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Peter Kropotkin, Oscar Wilde, William Morris. That, again, it seems obvious to me, have more in common with oh. one another than they do with anyone working in any Marxist tradition or anyone working in any Fabian tradition, I probably had to define Fabian for the listeners. Um, I'm not, maybe later. Um, and it seems to me the right word for this, this people that I've drawn, this group of people that I've drawn a line around that includes people who claim anarchism, like Kropotkin and Gandhi, or people who somewhat claim anarchism, like Tolstoy, or someone who disavows anarchism, like Morris, I, I, I don't see huge differences between them in a way that I can see huge differences between mm. all of those people and Ingalls. And that just yep. seems... <sighs> so, I mean, I think it, it depends what we're wanting to do. So um, so if you want to think about a tradition of thought, then I, I agree. Um, if you want to think about how someone positioned themselves, you know, I suppose... Because Morris was so deeply involved in this politics, 
Um, and because he's so careful, particularly in the way he uses words, yeah. it's so important to him. Um, I can understand why Morris scholars, if you like, bristle when people say he's an anarchist because clearly he didn't say it and and he's part of this so you know I'm, i've got absolutely no objection to to thinking about morris within that within that tradition of anarchism but i think there's a kind it's just a kind of respect that mm. that that's not how he called himself and and i think also that the risk of um the risk of putting him in, in the context of the 19th century arguments, the risk of putting them on one side or the other um, is that you, you then you miss some of the things that do clearly align him with Marxism. So one of the uh, one of the books he writes, which is a sort of sometimes partnered with News from Nowhere, is The Dream of John Bull. And it's a reverse. It's a reversal, really, of News from Nowhere in the sense that News from Nowhere takes us into a future. Uh, and the dream of John Bull takes us back into the to the 14th century past. And Morris is a visitor uh, in to the Peasants' Revolt, um, which is the the uh, a revolt um, against uh, feudalism and mm -hmm. and the um, by the by the the rural workers who who don't want who want to be free men and who don't want to be under the under the ownership of of their you know of, of being part and parcel of the, of the land and being serfs effectively. Um, and the story that Morris tells in that is a story of, um, of inevitable proletarianization. You know, mm. what's gonna, he, he tells John Bull that what's going to happen is that not only will you lose this fight, but the forces of capitalism, the forces of commerce are going to take over. Um, and and the condition of the workers will 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 change. They will become free in a sense, but their economic condition will enslave them in new ways. And all of that is is destined to take place. The difference that Marx or that that Morris makes from Marx in that story is that he says, you know, one of the things that we should expect, uh, or this is the question that's put to him by, by John Bull, is that. Well, why don't the workers rise up against this as the peasants have done in 1381? And Morris says, because they lack the bravery of your peasants. And actually, the conditions of socialism might be right. But unless you have that courage, unless you have that will, you're never going to get to, to anything that, that we would consider to be revolutionary change. So, so in a sense, what he does is he takes a kind of a and he, and he spends a long time um, being uh, educated by Ernest Belfort Bax in, in Marxist theory and trying to get his head around Marxist theory. He takes Marxist theory, but he doesn't really, he, he wants to kind of subvert it. Um, but I think that element of Morris's work is, is as important as his, as his commitment to, um, to, to fight outside of parliament as a direct activist uh, to understanding his socialism. Okay. I, you know, I haven't actually read uh, the the John Bull piece. Um, I think I want to say at this point, if it's okay with you, let's not talk about news from nowhere. Let's 
let's put news from nowhere aside as a as as a future episode and you're already coming back on the show to talk about anarchic uh, agreements your new book so you and i can talk about news from nowhere Let, let's put that aside for 2023 um okay. because it could it could deserve its own treatment as anarchism i, I okay. still think it does perhaps uh, well, also yeah Go ahead, sorry. i think that's a really interesting point so so news from nowhere is an anarchy yes. absolutely anarchy uh and and recognized as an anarchy kropotkin calls it the most perfect anarchy yes but that's so i agree with that yeah and then and then okay so all right now now i'm going to push forward then um on on this topic because i want to talk about the middle ages a little bit more which is why i don't want to talk about news from nowhere but now I'm, there's there's a very crude understanding of William James's philosophy. And it's frankly, uh, one of the reasons why some people discredit William James, because this is not a crude misunderstanding of William James's philosophy. It's a direct quote from William James, which is that we should see ideas for their cash value. Or, uh, and some people dislike another critique, a Marxist critique is that he uses the word cash value. He, this is not because he is a capitalist. He just is using money to mean the thing that gets you things. So the question is, what does an idea get you? And I would argue that Marxism, yes, we can go on and on about Lenin's uh, deviations from what Marx wrote, but mm -hmm. Marxism gets you the Soviet Union, more or less, or at least certainly not news from nowhere. Mm -hmm. A sort of left liberal technocratic progressive socialism gets you Bellamy's looking backward mm -hmm. and since since the outcome in this very rough understanding of William James's pragmatism is democratic socialism that makes Bellamy a democratic socialist when Morris imagines a future you get anarchy and the term for the set of ideas that has the cash value of anarchy is anarchism. Perhaps this is, uh, you know, pe people have been offended at James's um, almost uh, childishly rough understanding of ideas since he wrote these words 130 years ago. But sometimes yeah. I just want to say the cash value of Morris is anarchy and that makes him an anarchist. So, yeah, I mean, so, I think certainly the, you know, in those terms, then uh, news from nowhere. I agree is is an anarchy, and 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 it opens actually um, with a discussion uh, that Morris is imagining that he has at the League, i.e., the Socialist League, and it's with all the anarchists, anarchists, yes, with the anarchists. So <laughs> that's the context in which he then sets out this um, this dream. And it's and it's clearly an anarchy. Uh, and he makes the point. I mean, it's 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 explicit in, in News from Nowhere. At the same time, there's a, a letter that he writes. There's a series of letters that he writes. This guy George Bainton. I think these are written either in 1890 or 91, um, where he he says um, the difference that he has with with the anarchists. And by that, I think he means not. Not those the, the the kind of the insurgents in the Socialist League, but people like Kropotkin. 
is that he thinks that there has to be, uh, in the end, there has to be some overarching framework uh, which gives us a set of moral values, if you like. It, it, it delimits the possibilities. Um, and it's a, you know, basically, it's a kind. It, it, he's, what he's talking about is a kind of constitutional framework within which uh, socialism has to operate. And he thinks the anarchists don't have this. Yeah. Now, I think that's a mistake. Yes, I knew you were <laughs> going to say that. <laughs> uh, you know, I think that's. I think anarchists have that too. Um, but but Morris doesn't see it. Um, I mean, the interesting thing about news from nowhere is that the the thing that keeps I mean, the glue that keeps the society together uh, are the social relationships between between the people. Uh, actually, there is no there is nothing else that gives it cohesion and, and security uh, and the fact that they've learned from their history. Um, but but, you know, it's it's difficult to see it as, as anything but an anarchy. But I don't think that that means that that they're, therefore we can say that, that the Morris is an anarchist. I, I just think, you know, that's uh, it's just it's just a, a problem in terms of of, of his own um, political identity. So I'm going to tantalize the listener even more. So you should read news from nowhere, dear listener, and then you can hear discussion of it sometimes in 2023. If this podcast survives uh, the rigor of of returning to academic teaching for me, but I do believe it will. Um, there is another candidate for uh, our greatest anarchy these days, and it's Ursula Le Guin's novel, uh, The Dispossessed. Yeah, and it also, I don't believe they have a constitution. Um, but they do have something more than merely social relations. They have a text mm. and a guide in, in, mm. in a way that it sounds like um, Morris would maybe declare as not, as not anarchic in that, in that sense. And of course, at some point, I'm going to have to do an episode on the dispossessed <laughs> yes. as, as well. I myself, please... I really hope Kim Stanley Robinson is not listening to this episode. Do not care for the works of Ursula Le Guin. Um, so since she was his mentor and I've had him on the show, uh, I didn't have the, the wherewithal to tell him that. But perhaps he can come on and talk about the dispossessed and convince me that I'm wrong. With all that said, we can leave this aside and you and I can talk about constitutions and anarchic agreements in the future. I just want to end by talking about the Middle Ages. This can tie back uh -huh. into Kropotkin. Yeah. Because one of the things, I'll, I'll go back to Brad DeLong again. Brad DeLong starts society getting good in and around 1870, because that's when this, you know, scientific <laughs> progress gets oh. going. Yes, I know. I know. Look, I'm not, I'm not going to disagree with you, Ruth. I'm going to disagree with Brad. Yeah, yeah. No, it's 1870, from the point of view of whatever you want to call us, anarchists, anarcho-communists, socialists, seems to be when things start getting really bad. Wilde yep. says it's when the machinery really starts running that people become slaves. Now, mm -hmm. I think part of this is a misunderstanding. There's been a lot of great work on... Uh, 
recently on the economics of the ancient and medieval world. I personally think the entire field of economics is bullshit. That's actually what Brad DeLong and I were originally planning on talking about, but then he wrote a book. So we're going to talk about his book instead of why he shouldn't be an economist at Berkeley. Um, but lately, so, so the old narrative was people counted production in Rome, in ancient Athens, in Flanders, and decided that everyone there was starving. And when you do, when you count that way, 1870 does seem to be the time when all of a sudden you've got less starving. There's all sorts of people recently who have suggested that that was just bad counting. And it was bad counting in the service of a Hegelian narrative of progress, that things started getting better around the time that there were factories. So first of all, I'm not going to ask you to adjudicate this, but I think it is simply bad science to claim that up until 1870, everyone was hungry. And after 1870, there was enough food. And, you know, because of politics, mm -hmm. people were starving, but that's okay because factories and factory farms are still good. Mm. Leaving so, that aside, sorry, go ahead, yeah. jump in. Yes, I've been no, monologuing. Well, yeah, sorry. Um, I mean, I, you know, 1870 is such an important date. Um <laughs> I mean, for everybody in the in the in the in the socialist movement, uh, because it's, it's the Paris Commune. It's the Commune. It's the Commune. I know. I, when, I, when, I, when, I, when I saw that Brad had chosen eighteen seventy, I was like, "This is manna from heaven." You know, and and for 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 Morris for Kropotkin, um, I mean, you know, Morris writes about the the Commune with with. Belfort Bax and Victor Darve, who's a, a, a Belgian um, anarchist, uh, for Kropotkin, it's the watershed, um, and they—I mean—they have different interpretations of it. But, but you know, the the what the—I mean, you know, okay. So, I mean, one, it's not true that you don't get famines after eighteen seventy. Uh, but, but two, I mean, the great thing—you know—what what do we get with eighteen seventy? We get a massacre. We get the biggest European massacre of the nineteenth century in Paris. Um, that's what you get with the with the centralization of, of of state power, which is which is how they see the commune. And the commune, I mean, the Paris Commune, Big C, becomes a vehicle, I suppose, for people to reflect on what communalism uh, might be and how you might. Uh, so you're not trying to restore the the. The economic condition of of the of the of the Middle Ages, and 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 in any case, you know, Morris simply doesn't believe that you can wind the clock back. I mean, the anarchists don't believe you can wind the clock back either. What they're trying to do is to think about what was it in the in that period of time that uh, that created this fantastic art and culture uh, and. You know all of these things that we that we we continue to to celebrate and revere uh, across the landscape in Europe. What was it about those times uh, that that has been lost that can be recreated uh, on a more stable and uh, more, I mean, in Kropotkin's terms, if you like, efficient basis, such that you do have uh, a more reliable economy. Uh, which will enable people to overcome subsistence living, which is basically, I mean, you know, you want to talk about medievalism, you know, he's seen what it's like in Russia. He knows how peasants live. You know, they're dying at, at, at young ages because they're forever trying to scrape a living uh, from the land. 
So Kropotkin's view is that you're not trying to maintain people in this condition. What you're trying to do is improve people's economic condition, but you can't do that without thinking about the uh, the broader landscape in which economics works. Economics isn't this isn't this separate thing that we can control in order to deliver well-being. Economics is part is a, is an attitude to well-being which requires us to put in uh, to make you know to 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 change the way in which we produce and how we share knowledge uh, and and how we value what we produce. And and unless we break away from the um, from the norms that capitalism imposes on us, we are all we can do is try and play catch up with the inequalities that that system breeds. That's the best that we can hope for. And if we look at the way that capitalism has developed, you know, since 1870, it's not been a great story. <laughs> you know, uh, not only in terms of the vast inequalities that exist globally and, and within our domestic economies, but in terms of the destruction of the environment that Morris and Kropotkin and others were warning about, at that time, if we let that system go, what was going to happen? We were going to end up here. You know, that's what they told us. Yes, you're absolutely right. I do want to clarify that, you know, Brad's book is called Slouching Towards Utopia because he does have a keen eye for all of the horrible things that have happened since 1870. But he is nevertheless willing to place them in a narrative of of progress, of unfortunately benighted progress that certainly Morris and Kropotkin would not be willing to, and I, and I, no, I, I mean, either. you know, no, I mean, you know, they, they, they see, 18, I mean, you know, Kropotkin in 1914 is saying, you know, 1870 is the root of this. Yeah. Yeah, yes, we've had absolutely. two world wars. <laughs> how many, <laughs> how many millions died? You know, how many famines have you had? How many, how much killing do you need? Um, before you wake up. I mean, it's, it's, um, yeah, 1870 is a fantastic moment to pick, actually. <laughs> yes, I know. It's, a, it's, he did me such a favor. Um, Brad did me such a favor choosing it. And then the thing to say is that, you know, there were ways of living in the past, which the, the, the commune picks up on, because that, that, that is a throwback to the, the term that used to be used for the governing of Paris. Commune just meant, oh municipality, city government, yeah. we, we would say like town council in, in yeah. the US. It just, it would be very weird if people were called town councilians that, that went out and fought the Versailles <laughs> government. But that literally, English speakers, that's, that's what it would, that's what it would be. Um, and yeah. I, there's, you know, a figure I think who is similar to Morris in lots of ways, Gropius, who named his arts and crafts society yeah. that tried to create beautiful things for the people Bauhaus which yeah. is the German term for yeah. like a craft collective that precisely yeah. as you say Ruth would have the, the, the name for the people who worked together not under instruction of an architect but all built something like the cathedral of Kern together it's Bauhaus that is yeah. the future and Gropius I mean Bauhaus made the future in a way that Morris is future looks to us like the past. Bauhaus yeah. design is still being used to represent, say, the 23rd century. The Gropius had the same idea as Morris. Bauhaus yeah. means the same thing as the, well, I'll, I'm sorry, I 
I'm yeah, no, that's, uh, I mean, there, there are direct links. I mean, the aesthetic is different, but there are direct links. So, I mean, there are, there are I mean, the, um, the, Vien the, the Viennese secessionists also read Morris. Yeah. Um, so although, and, and although they had the same problems, they couldn't produce, you know, the, the items they wanted to produce for the, for the audiences that they wanted to, uh, to reach, you know, and they, they couldn't have, they, they didn't achieve that transformation of work through labor. That's basically what Morris wanted to do. Uh, they have exactly the same idea. Uh, and that's, you know, that if you, if you discover, uh, that you cannot, uh, you cannot, uh, achieve that transformation because of the constraints that capitalism imposes on you then the lesson is that you must destroy capitalism yeah. <laughs> not that, not that you give into it yes uh and turn yourself into a you know a specialist uh privileged uh artisan uh who 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 kind of opts out of that system uh no you you have to you have to work for its for its destruction and i, I think that's the you know, that's the, the real bravery of Morris, um, you know, for someone who'd come from his um, from his from his comfort, from someone who could easily have just spent his life, um, you know, making his career, uh, selling his designs. You know, that's not what he does. Uh, he calls himself a revolutionary socialist and, uh, you know, he doesn't succeed, but he fights all his life for it. Yeah, he's a brave man. Oh, absolutely. 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 And, you know, when when I talked with Mark Bittman about how to fix the, the food system and I said, you know, spend less time lobbying the Senate to make a better farm bill and just go to your farmer's market, I think that we can take the same lesson from Morris. Yes, capitalism, the, or what, whatever you want to call it, the mode of production we live in needs to be smashed. Uh, One way to, if not smash it, at least deviate from it, is find someone in your neighborhood, in your area, who makes beautiful pottery, buy their pottery. Uh, yes, it will yep. cost more than a plate uh, that you that's been mass produced and shipped from China. Honestly, it probably doesn't cost more in the grand scheme of things. When you factor in the exploitation of that worker, the carbon costs, everything, yep. what, the, what the economists call negative externalities in yeah. its cost for the world the that local piece of pottery is probably cheaper yeah and you know and if you can't you know and i think there are you know morris says you know there are choices that 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 he, that his that his preferred sort of way of of, of operating is going to uh, going to impose that you know there are certain things that you can't that you can't find in your locality and then there's a decision you know so so what do you do um, and his answer is, I think you go without. Um, yeah. And in order then to provide what you need in order to enrich your life as far as you can in your locality. So, I mean, you know, to give an example, I mean, we're, we're now being told by our politicians here that it's fantastic news that we can import lamb from Australia. This <laughs> is one of the great benefits of Brexit. What is the point of that? You know, it's it's not as if this is something that we we can't. You know, if we want to eat lamb, we can we can we, you know we can produce sheep. <laughs> the, really the British Isles are so known for the production yet, of in sheep. capitalism, it makes sense yes. to start in, you know shipping this stuff from one side of the world to another. And and Morris's view is that that has to stop. Um, they, they will tell you that it is cheaper to buy a plate 
that was made in China and shipped to where you are, as opposed that they, they will tell you it is radically inefficient. The only efficiency yeah. is to ship a plate from China. To buy a plate from your local community is inefficient. That's how you yeah. know they have gone mad. And wherever yeah. uh, you are, there's someone making yeah. beautiful yeah. plates. And, 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 and actually, normally, the reason that it's cheaper is because, you know, the people who are actually making them are being exploited in ways that, that wouldn't be possible, mm-hmm. you know, here. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, they're not getting the work conditions. You know, they're pretty bad here, but they're they're an awful lot better, awful lot better than they are for for those who are making goods that are cheap and flooding the markets here. So, uh, you know, they're they're the costs. Um, yeah, there it is. Morris has a great line in News from Nowhere where he says the goal is to produce something with as little labor cost as possible. That's yeah. what is that's what they count as efficiency in this current system. It's not anything that you would think of as efficiency if you were designing efficiency from a starting point. But if you're designing it from the perspective of a wealthy capitalist, efficiency means how little can I pay my yeah. labor? And then we're yeah. told we simply can't afford to have nice things. It costs too much. This takes yeah. us right back where we started. It yeah. only costs too much if you're thinking in terms of profit. If you're thinking yeah. in terms of human cost and environmental cost, a mm. beautiful artisanal thing made by someone in your community that you treasure is far cheaper. And Morris's yeah. dream was rewriting the social and economic system to align monetary costs or yeah. even, let's say, economic costs with environmental and human costs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and 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 the and the benefit of that is 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 as he says that that in the end, then our production becomes something that we engage in uh, creatively, so that we don't think that we're working anymore. <laughs> we actually we enjoy what we do. I mean, you know, and and some of us do have that privilege. You know, we enjoy what we do, uh, but a lot of people don't. Yeah, I. That's, uh, I mean, you're absolutely right. I I am not, I'm bearing no burden at all to return to UNC to teach. It's what I wanted to do. I would have done it for free. But that is because I sit in a, you know, dingy though my office is, <laughs> in an incredibly privileged position. And Morris's radical view that nevertheless I find convincing is that that could be extended to everyone Yeah. with a reordering of the system of production. Mm, that's right. What, wonderful. <laughs> wonderful. This has been the first anniversary edition of Everyday Anarchism. Thank you so much to my guest, Ruth Kenna. Look forward to hearing her discuss her new book, uh, co-written book, Anarchic Agreements. Because yes, according to Ruth, at least, anarchists can write constitutions. I'm a little bit skeptical. I'm looking forward to reading the book. Okay, cool. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I found it fascinating. We did not even get to Morris's most important work, News from Nowhere. But don't worry, Ruth will be back to discuss News from Nowhere in season two. Yes, it's time for a programming note. The show is still coming out, as you know, as you're listening to an episode of it right now. 
but it's not coming out every week anymore. It's going to come out fitfully throughout the rest of 2022, especially as I'm speaking to authors, people who have new books coming out. And then for 2023, it's going to become an every other week show for what I'm calling season two, which... I don't know, season two is going to be between 10 and 20 episodes. I'm still working it out, so it'll run from roughly half the year to almost the entire year. The cat is still here helping me record. In the meantime, I could still use your help. If I can get more money that I can budget to editing, the show can perhaps even be a weekly show. If you can, please go to everydayanarchism.com and give. You can sign up for my newsletter there, a newsletter that is currently on hiatus, but I hope will be coming back soon. You can support the show a number of other ways. The best way is probably just telling a friend that you think they should listen to this show. Rating it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify helps a lot. Buying some of the merchandise. Emailing me helps me spiritually. I'm hoping to do some Q&A episodes, which I haven't done for a while in season two because the questions have mostly dried up. If you have any questions, send me some questions and I will do a Q&A episode. The show has lasted a year. It's grown enormously. It's been utterly vital to me in this past year. So thank you for listening. Thank you for making it happen. Last programming note, next week I'll be talking to the economist and economic historian Brad DeLong about his new book, Slouching Towards Utopia. We're going to start by talking about William Morris and his utopia before we get to Brad's own vision of the future that I personally find quite amenable, although I certainly find much less desirable than the anarchist communism of William Morris. The music, which you're about to hear, is by David Hill.